If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 3, to the passage that was, I guess, um, immortalized, or at least made popular in broader uh, culture back with the 1960s song by the birds, uh, Turn, Turn, Turn. Some of you are too young to have uh, listened to that, but if you pull it up later today, very melodic, uh, 1960s-ish band sound. Um, yeah, I don't know that the passage, if uh, Solomon was writing it, he would write it to that same you know, tune and that music. I think probably it's, uh, in, in Solomon's mind, this, is, this poem is a little more discombobulating than the sound of that song. Let me tell you what I think he's saying before I read it. Um, first of all, he is saying we obviously cannot control time. Uh, every time comes and every time goes at God's appointed hour. So the times of laughter or times of mourning, times to gather stones, times to cast them away. Uh, you'll notice in the poem that it's all basically opposite poles of the human experience. And uh, these happen to us. We, we, don't, we don't do them. They, they, they do us. They're largely out of our control. And one of the great challenges of life is, is to know, like, what time is it? What, what time am I in? And what is the appropriate way for me to respond to the time? And, you know, you, you, you just never, you never really know for certain. I mean, one guy, for instance, one guy will say, what we have here is an opportunity that we cannot let us, uh, let pass us by. And the next guy will say, well, no, this, I mean, there'll be plenty of other opportunities and better opportunities that, that will come. And the truth is, neither of those guys know. <laughs> I mean, only God knows because only God knows how everything fits together. And what those guys are doing is, I mean, they're, they're working off of probabilities and working off of, you know, past experiences. And it's, it's frankly quite hard to know what time is it. So yes, life is constantly changing. It is changing at God's design. And Solomon's thesis is that given those facts, we should stri strive to live in the present moment with gratitude, not being held hostage by our past, not even primarily being oriented towards the future, but to live you know, gratefully in the present, which is not easy, is it? <laughs> And to respond as best we can to the times that God gives. What I want to talk about briefly today are a few things that make gratefully living in the present uh, difficult to do. And they are uh, nostalgia, trauma, and futility. Very inspiring. <laughs> nostalgia, trauma, futility. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain. A time to search and a time to give up, give up searching. A time to keep 
and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What does the worker gain from his toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on men. Um, But then verse 11, he says, well, but he has made, God has made everything beautiful in its time. And he has also set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from the beginning to end. And his resolution, I know that there is nothing better for men than to be happy and to do good while they live, that everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all his toil. This is the gift of God. And this is the word of God. Thanks be to God. So tomorrow morning, I'm doing something that is completely out of character for my day off. A friend and I are jumping on a 6.30 in the morning flight that is going to take us to Phoenix. And we're going to drive from the airport to a swanky golf resort, <laughs> play a round of golf um, in the Arizona desert, you know, suffer for Jesus and you know, <laughs> 79 degrees and, and sunny skies right underneath uh, Squaw Butte, Squaw Peak there. Um, and then we're going to eat some just the best, best Mexican food in America. And we're going to fly back tomorrow night. I've never done it before. Like I, that's, for me, it's totally unfamiliar. That's lifestyles of the rich and famous kind of things. Um, the reason it's especially significant for me, most of you know, is I grew up in Phoenix. Um, you know, from elementary school up through college, you know, all my childhood was there. And then my mom died in 1999. A few months later, we ended up moving for seminary. Over the course of the next several years, every single one of my family and Aaron's family ended up you know, leaving Phoenix. And by the time we got to Boise then, there was no um, nest to go back to. You know, our, our home had you know, uh, been shepherded away with the wind. And I was thinking about it. Um, I haven't played golf in Phoenix for 20 years. And, and some of my, really my best memories of life are playing golf with my dad. You know, hunting quail in the desert and playing golf with my dad. And I mean, you can relate to that. You have... There was something special that you did with your parents that, that just kind of meant the world to you. And for me, it was getting to play golf with my dad. I don't want to let nostalgia ruin tomorrow. And that's always the challenge, isn't it? It is. We do this. Like nostalgia, if, if we want things to be the way that they were, we really miss the way that they are right now. <laughs> And there's something about nostalgia. It doesn't have to be this way. I mean, a nostalgic event can help you enhance the present. If by it, it you know, causes you to say, thank you, God. That, that was so sweet of you to give me that. And I remember that and the sweetness of that. But usually we don't handle it that way. We try to reach back into the past and you know, pull it up with us into the present, wishing that that past was our present. And life doesn't work that way, does it? So last week um, in the sermon, if you didn't hear it, I tried to make the case 
that the way you translate verse 2 of chapter 1 is critical to understanding the entirety of the book. And really all the themes of the book just are like unpacking that. So I said, uh, some translations say vanity of vanity, life is vanity. Other translations say meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless. And I said, Solomon does not believe that this life is meaningless. And he, he does not believe that everything in this life is vain. The Hebrew word there is the word, what? Vapor, hebel. Like this life, he says, is vaporous. And I said that's true in really two ways, at least two ways. One is this life defines our attempts to reach out and and, grab it and control it and shape it and move it into what we want it to be. It's like putting your hand hand into a cloud bank. It's just not going to work. And that's exactly, exactly what we do with our past, or we're tempted to do with our past, is to reach for it. But no sooner do you reach into the past, it's gone. It's completely gone. I don't know if you've ever tried this before. If you look at um, your wristwatch or if you have an Apple watch, do Apple watches have a second hand ticking on them or do they just show you the time? Just watch a second hand on a clock. Watch it head towards the 12. And when it hits 12, we just briefly look at the three. And then notice as it swings to the three, that three is in the future and then for the tiniest moment, it's in the present, and then it's in the past. That three, it's, it's, it's a vapor. It is a vapor. Time is, is so much a vapor. And those of you who have lived in the city of Boise for many years, you've seen this place change a lot. And if you're not careful, it, it is very easy to... Um, The traffic's so bad now. It's so crowded. Oh, oh, I wish things were the way they used to be. Uh, And that city that was, that city that you have so fondly in your memory, can rob you of the city that is. It's true of every one of our memories. It's a struggle for many of us. As one author puts it, you know, many people feel as though their best times were behind them. Maybe it was the high point, sorry, maybe the high point of their lives was the aimless days of adolescent summer when they were without responsibility or care. Or maybe it was the glory days of being in high school and starring on the basketball team. Or the early days of living on your own in college or the early days of marriage and family. Oh, if life could be as fresh and as new today as it was back then. And as soon as you recover those moments, you, you miss the moment that you are in. What is it they say? The perfect day only comes around once, yet you spend your whole life trying to recreate it. (laughs) And that is how God made the world. It's one of the most frustrating things about the world, that that is how God made the world. If nostalgia is one failed attempt to hold on to the past, robbing us of present gratitude, let me suggest that that trauma uh, is the second one of those vapor... um, Trauma clouds us from seeing the present. So I said, just like if you're driving through the, on a road and you, you come into fog, there is a world out there, but the fog is going to obscure your vision of it. I really think that our sorrows and our traumas and all the, the, the bad pains that we have in our past, they can obscure what is standing right in front of our faces. 
any number of examples we could select, but you know, a lot of us have fallen in love um, to somebody we probably shouldn't have. <laughs> and then, you know, the relationship ends. And she dumps us. Uh, it's crushing. It's extremely crushing. Um, and we guys, we don't like to talk about it, but let's just say that that, that wound, the wound of that event got infected. It didn't heal up properly. And a year or two has passed, and the wound is, is still red, uh, and now it has pus in it. And there's a girl whom God has brought into your life. She's just a friend, but she's a friend who everybody else thinks she'd be great for you. And she's standing right there in front of you. And you say, but it's not the right time. I, I'm just not ready. And, but the reason it's not the right time is because you, you never healed up. You're kind of in, still in the fog and you cannot see. And I'm right, there's just so many examples of this that we could give. But when we say that our past is holding us hostage, what we mean by that is it's really impeding our ability to, to see and respond to what God has given me this day. So today may be a, a day to dance because God is playing music. It may be a day to take the girl to the dance but, you know, you're still knotted up because of uh, a, a lost love. Or, or today is a day to build. Today is a day to start something. Today is a day to be entrepreneurial. But, but you leave the stone on the ground because of uh, what? A, a previous failure, a, a previous sorrow. You know, all of these wounds. We have all of these wounds that have not healed properly. And one of the curious features of this, it's a lot easier to see this happening in somebody else than it is to see it happening in ourselves, isn't it? So in 1983, Walker Percy, a Roman Catholic, uh, published his book, how many of you read Lost in the Cosmos? It has a very interesting subtitle, Lost in the Cosmos, the self-help, sorry, the last self-help book. (laughs) So the self-help movement, especially in the 80s, was in full swing, and, and Percy found the phenomena so vexing that he, he decided to write a self-help book to end all self-help books. And in order to do that, he assembled a set of quizzes, stories, and thought experiments, all basic self-help fare, to challenge the two fundamental assumptions of the self-help movement, which are, number one, that we can really know ourselves. He's like, he's like no, you can't. You can't really know yourself. You don't know yourself even half as well as you think you know yourself. And number two, that we can consequently really help ourselves. <laughs> He's like, no, you can't really help yourself. Not on your own. But most of us try on our own. And it's the simple message of, of, his, of that book, and part of the message of that book is, you know, you need community to point out when you're in the fog. If you think you're headed in the right direction... You need community to tell you that you're disoriented. And in order to live fully in the present and find satisfaction in the times that God has given you, like none of us does that very well on our own. We need community. Um, We need community to help us heal from our sorrows and our traumas. And we need community to help us see when we are still, um, you know, living in them. The third and final problem with time, I, I could have chosen like hundreds of these, right? But I decided to go with three. 
It's just simply the futility of time. I mean, it feels like we never get anywhere, or it can feel that way. If you look at verse 9, he says, the same refrain comes up again, again and again, what does the worker gain from his toil? It's a major theme of Ecclesiastes, on the way that time marches on and on with nothing we can do to stop it, and the seeming fruitlessness of our work here day after day after day. It's the life of a mom, of course, (laughs) right? A mom wonders, why am I doing the dishes again? Why am I doing these dishes? They're always going to be dirty. Why am I doing the laundry? It's always going to be full. Why am I working so hard to keep this house clean? I, and a mom, she's like, she realized, I'm never going to finish everything I need to do because everything that I do comes undone, (laughs) You know, your job is a shepherding the wind, like we talked about last week. And you, you have, I mean, a mom looks herself in the mirror one day, and she does ask, what gain is there in this? What profit, what does the worker gain from his toil? You know, especially when you pour all your effort into your kids, and then you start to see your kids, like, like going off into the far country. And then it's really burdensome and painful, like, what did I gain from all that toil? I think those of you guys who are retired have had a lot of time to reflect back on your jobs. And I mean, if you, if you work for the same company for 40 years, you were thankful for that, I'm sure. I mean, that's a rarity nowadays. You were thankful for the paycheck. You were thankful that it was, you know, by that you were able to provide for your family. You were thankful that you had something to do. But haven't you guys... Like, look back and sometimes, maybe in a a darker moment of life, look back and said, did my job really make any difference in this world? Like, if you considered the number of hours that you worked, and you put that on one side of the ledger, and then you look on the other side of the ledger, and what did I actually accomplish? Jean-Paul Sartre, the French existentialist, do you know what he calls that? He calls it nausea. The other German philosophers called it angst. Uh, Solomon in verse 10 calls it a burden. I have seen the burden that God has laid on, on men. Uh, just it's like the more you experience in this life, the more you try to accomplish in this life, the more of this life you do. And you look at the big picture, it can be awfully nauseating. <laughs> There was a Calvin and Hobbes comic strip where Calvin is sitting in his desk at school with his hand raised, and he says, Mrs. Wormwood, I have a question about this math lesson. And she very cautiously replies, yes. Given that sooner or later we're all just going to die, like, what's the point of learning about integers? And she says, class, turn to page 83 in your textbook. (laughs) And Calvin then looks out from the comic strip and he says, nobody likes us big picture people. (laughs) Because the big picture, the big picture can be nauseating. Psalm 39 is an Ecclesiastes 3 psalm. I'll just read it for you real quickly. David is suffering. It's a psalm of lament, if I can find it in my Bible. Where is it? Psalm 39. And he's asking for God to show him, you know, show him the big picture so that he can endure his suffering. And where are we? 
show, I'm 39.4, show me, O Lord, my life's end and the number of my days, for my life is fleeting. You have made my days a mere handbreadth. The span of my years is as nothing before you. Each man's life is but a vapor. Man is a mere phantom as he goes to and fro. He bustles about, but only in vain. He heaps up wealth, not knowing who will get it. But now, Lord, what do I look for? My hope is in you. And I think that captures this this chapter because in verse 11, he says that God has made everything beautiful in his time. And David is like underneath the weaver's loom. And if if you've ever seen a weaver's loom, on the underside, all that is visible are what? The knots, the frayed ends, the hanging strands, the snarls. Uh, It's, I mean, it's, There's no discernible pattern underneath the weaver's loom. And yet, God has made everything beautiful in his time, the the top side of the loom. And the great demonstration of this is the incarnation of the Son of God. That in the fullness of time, God sent his Son. And at just the right time, the Son died for us. The Son entered into our time to show the Father in his story, in his story, He entered into our time so that whatever, this is what one author puts it, so that whatever time it is, a time to live, a time to die, a time to seek, a time to give up, a time to weep, or a time to rejoice, by his death and resurrection, he has redeemed those times. And each and every day is then an opportunity to walk with God in faith, believing that he weaves those various times of our lives into a tapestry. Though we may not be able to see the pattern in the carpet, we trust that there is a God making all things beautiful. In conclusion, it's hard for me to live in the, in the moment. Um, I'm a planner, constantly looking at the future. Or, uh, or I'm ashamed to say um, I'm on my iPad too much. You know, I'm not paying attention to my family members. I'm, I'm reading. Um, and some of us, uh, it's hard for us to live in the moment because we're always grasping for the past. We're analyzing the past. The most frustrating point of time is, as I said in the interjection, we can't control it. Like, God determines what time it is. And, and uh, God determines if it's a time to mourn. And we don't want to mourn. God determines if it's a time to be born. Isn't it interesting that like the two most important poles of our lives, we, we have nothing to do with them. The t- when I am born, to whom I am born, where I am born, totally out of my hands. When I die, where I die, unless I'm stupid, <laughs> completely out of my hands. Um, and then everything in between, it, it, it's... It, it's in his hands, and it's frustrating because he sends times into our lives that, that we don't want. So we reach to the past and try to bring it forward, or we spend our f- focus on the future and to br- try to bring it into the present. We turn away from the present. I think that's what we do by nature. We turn away from the present moment. But what God does in weekly worship, he has carved out weekly time for us to eat and drink with gratitude. 
That's what Solomon says of a sort in verse 13. He said to like eat and drink with gratitude and to just be thankful for the toil that you even have on this life. He says that is the gift of God. And I don't think any of us truly realize how significant that that is. That he gives us this time to just to eat bread, to drink wine, and just be grateful for what we have. And not nauseated or bitter about what we don't. Like at this present moment, what we have, what we have is Christ. We have Christ and we see Christ. I can imagine David and Solomon driving on Interstate 80 through Wyoming. And they're about 50 miles outside of Rollins in the middle of nowhere. When traffic comes to a complete halt, 20 minutes pass and they hardly move an inch. And so David says to Solomon, why don't you stand up on the roof of the car and look out to see? They, they don't have Google Maps, right? Stand up on the roof of the car and look out and, and see. And so Solomon does. He gets on the roof and there's a line of cars stretching into the eternal Wyoming. <laughs> uh, four hours pass and they still have hardly moved. And David says, why don't you stretch, step, uh, get up on the car again? And this time Solomon looks backwards and behind him are, you know, a line of cars stretching into the eternal Wyoming. Um, and frankly, if you're taking a trip like that, nothing would be more nauseating than to be stuck and not moving in the middle of Wyoming. Ecclesiastes 3 and Psalm 39, it's like David and Solomon, they want to see. They, they want to see how it all fits. They want to they see how it all goes together. And to a certain extent, they could not. But but by faith, we see, what do we see? We see Alpha and we see Omega. That's his title. The first letter of the Greek alphabet and the last letter. We see the Alpha and the Omega. We see the beginning of the end. We see Christ. And we see in, in God's plan is to unite all things in heaven and on earth under one king, the Christ. To restore all that is broken, to heal all that is cursed, to judge all that is wicked, to redeem all the times that have been lost. And the great project of, um, of, of this, uh, the, the great unification project, it, it takes place in the church. And, it, and the time that we're giving for it is every Sunday morning to eat and drink with gratitude. Amen.